Welcome to the NACE Journal Club. We have a great issue this month, beginning with an article on digital CBT versus meds for insomnia, then an article on vitamin D and the risk for type 2 diabetes in patients with prediabetes. Then we're going to discuss diet and its relation to total mortality and cardiovascular risk. And finally, we're going to discuss another diet article, particularly looking at sugar and its effect on health. Our first article this month is from JAMA Network Open, and it is titled Comparative Effectiveness of Digital Cognitive Behavioral Therapy Versus Medication Therapy Among Patients with Insomnia, a critically, critically important area for all of us in primary care. And joining us to discuss this topic is Aaron Sutton who is a licensed clinical social worker and clinical assistant professor of family and community medicine at Thomas Jefferson University, behavioral health faculty in the family medicine residency program at Jefferson Health Abington, as well as chief wellness officer for graduate medical education at Jefferson Health Abington. Aaron, welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. Scottick. It's always a pleasure to be here. Can you tell us what the objectives of this study were? As the title implies, we are looking at the effectiveness of this technological advancing app-based CBT for insomnia. There have been some randomized control trials that have looked at the clinical implications of this, but not really the effectiveness of it. So this is what the article is looking at. That's fantastic. And it's so exciting because in the office, it's difficult sometimes to refer people out for traditional CBT for insomnia, which we know is effective. How do they look at this? So it's interesting that you say that. So this is a retrospective cohort study that looked at three different groups. So we looked at a group that was using the app and the app they use is called Good Sleep 365. We had the app group, we had a medication group, which were using hypnotics, and then we had a combination of the two. And so we looked at the comparison of results at three different intervals, at one month interval, at three months, and then at six months. Interesting. And what did the results show? So this took place in China. There were about 4,000 patients enrolled. So 418 used the app, 862 used meds, and then a combination of of both was around 2,700. So at six months, the CBTI app was superior to medication therapy. And what we looked at really is that the combination of the two resulted in sustained improvements compared with monotherapy alone. Wow. And that that is simply amazing because we know that the traditional sleep medicines, things like lorazepam or zolpidem, cause a lot of daytime sedation, have significant side effects, but we think of them as effective. It it sounds like they are not as effective as app-based CBT. Is that correct? And I think you're right, Dr. Swinnick. And I believe that, as you just said, the side effects of using an app-based are very limited, right? Some apps have a cost, but really the side effect profile of using an app, which is going to teach you, again, these long-term sustainability methods of improving your sleep, things like 
uh, thought restructuring and how we actually look at sleep and, and what it means and how we actually organize our sleep patterns versus taking a medication, which is going to have side effects. And that we can look and say, you know what, the combination of the two is going to be much more effective than just that one single therapy alone. Fascinating. So it sounds like this has very real clinical implications for us in the office. There are a lot of different apps that are already out there that are being used that are fairly good at this. One is called CBTI Coach and one is called Restful. And both of these use the cognitive behavioral piece, which again, looks at things like diaries and thoughts around sleep and the behavioral challenges that we have, such as time in bed and what we do when we're not able to sleep and how we get up and engage in different activities. So all of these around that same kind of premise of how we change our thoughts and behaviors. I think I'm going to check out those apps and I'm going to start recommending them to patients. Aaron Sutton, thanks so much for joining us. Dr. Skolnick, a pleasure. Our next article is titled Vitamin D and Risk for Type 2 Diabetes in People with Prediabetes, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis published in Annals of Internal Medicine. This is an incredibly well-done article on an important topic that I think we've all often wondered about and seen some different data out there over a lot of years. Joining us today to discuss this is the first author of this study, Dr. Anastasios Pitas, who is Division Chief and Fellowship Program Director in the Division of Endocrinology, Diabetes, and Metabolism, and a professor at the Tufts University School of Medicine. Welcome, Tasso. Neil, it's a pleasure to be here. Look forward to this. Tasso, starting out, can you tell us a little bit about the background here and why you chose to do this study? Absolutely. Based on longitudinal observational studies and short-term mechanistic studies that we and others have done, there appears to be a link between vitamin D and risk of developing diabetes. This audience may be aware of the D2D study, which was an NIH-supported, also partially ADA-supported, large multicenter clinical trial in the U.S. to test whether vitamin D lowers the risk of diabetes in adults with prediabetes. It turned out that whenever you have an idea, many other people have the same idea, and a few of them will test that idea in studies. So there are few trials around the world who attempted to test this hypothesis. Excellent. And can you tell us a little bit about how you approached this, the methodology? So we knew that there were studies around the world. So we did a systematic review of the literature looking for diabetes prevention trials that were specifically designed, and I will emphasize specifically designed, to test whether vitamin D reduces the risk of diabetes in adults with prediabetes. So these were very specific trials. So for example, if a trial that was not designed for that, but presented results was not included in our meta-analysis. We found three trials, the Tromso trial in Norway, the D2D in the US, and the DPVD in Japan. In all three trials, the risk of diabetes was reduced in the group assigned to vitamin D compared to placebo, and did so in a remarkably similar way. 
but the observed differences were not statistically significant because each trial was power, was smaller than the differences were smaller than each trial was powered to detect. So, unlike traditional meta-analysis that summarize summary data, we obtained individual participant data from the three trials and run analysis which were pre-specified in the publicly available protocol of these meta-analysis. Fantastic. And can you tell us the results? After combining individual participant data, we found that vitamin D reduced the risk of progression from prediabetes to diabetes anywhere from 12 to 17%, depending on the type of analysis. We also found that vitamin D increased the likelihood of regression to normal glucose regulation by 30%. Remember, this Individuals had prediabetes, so they could either progress or regress to normal glucose regulation. There was no evidence of risk with vitamin D. We also did some additional analysis, and we found that participants in the vitamin D group who maintained intra-trial 25-hydroxy-D levels above 15 nanograms per ml had a 76% risk reduction in new-onset diabetes compared to those who maintain blood levels between 20 to 29 nanograms per ml. And this range is what would be considered adequate for general bone health by most guidelines. And was there any effect of, or did you look at, the vitamin D level of people coming in, i.e. if they came in with vitamin D levels of 40 or 50 or higher, did vitamin D still make a difference? So the mean vitamin D level was about 28 nanograms per ml in the entire cohort. And there was no statistically significant interaction between the baseline level and the effect of vitamin D. But there was a trend towards people who had lower levels to begin with doing better. That makes sense. So when we take that information and think about how we might use it, what do you see as the clinical implications of this trial, the meta-analysis? Yeah, so these results show that vitamin D has a beneficial effect in people with prediabetes and there were no safety signals. So I'd like to make two points. One is that all participants received and were encouraged to follow the recommended lifestyle-based advice for diabetes prevention. These results, therefore, are over and above participants receiving a more than average lifestyle-based intervention. Because this has come up before, it's important for the listeners to understand that it's not vitamin D versus lifestyle, it's vitamin D in addition to lifestyle. So I don't want this paper to give the wrong message. And the second point that also the editorial makes is that, and this is often missed when discussing the role of vitamin D in health and disease, is that the benefit to risk ratio for vitamin D depends on the target population and medical condition. And it is important to make the distinction between treatment versus supplementation. So guidelines on vitamin D supplementation apply to the general population for general bone health. These meta-analyses, these three trials, examined the benefit-to-risk ratio of vitamin D as a treatment approach 
to lower risk of developing diabetes. So therefore, they can be applied to people with high-risk prediabetes, but they shouldn't be applied to the general population that is at low risk for or average risk for diabetes. That's such a great point. And I love the way in the paper itself, you pointed out that drawing from the diabetes prevention program trial, that with intensive lifestyle modification, there was a 58% reduction in progression to from prediabetes to diabetes. And with vitamin D, there's a reduction shown in the meta-analysis, but it was not as large. It was around 15%. So it sounds like in terms of clinical implications, optimal might be doing both. Is that correct? Absolutely. And we didn't discuss this today, but in the paper, we also found that vitamin D in the cholecalciferol form, which is the most common form we use in the U.S., benefited more people who had lower weight. So therefore, I'm speculating here because I don't have the data, but it may work even better in people who lose weight because of lifestyle interventions. Tasso, this has been fantastic. I think we've learned, our listeners will learn a lot from that. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me, Neil. Uh, it was fun. Our next article, which is one of two really important articles on how diet affects our health outcomes, is titled Comparison of Seven Popular Structured Dietary Programs and the Risk of Mortality in Major Cardiovascular Events in Patients at Increased Cardiovascular Risk. This is a systematic review and a network meta-analysis published in the BMJ. And joining us to discuss this article is Gabriella Petrangolo, who is a second-year family medicine resident in the Family Medicine Residency Program at Jefferson Health Abington. Gabriella, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Neil. Like you said, this is a meta-analysis and systematic review of randomized controlled trials. In all, 40 trials were assessed. The trials selected were focused on participants who were at increased risk for poor cardiovascular outcomes. Either they had established cardiovascular disease or they had two or more risk factors for it. The selected studies were assessed for bias and they were graded on their evidence certainty level. Um, the diets across the studies compared included low-fat diets, very low-fat diets, low-fat and low-sodium diets, Modified fat diets, meaning there was no change in fat intake, however, an increased polyunsaturated to saturated fat ratio. Mediterranean diet, which we know includes increased fish, fruit, veggie intake, and the fats are generally monounsaturated. The Ornish diet, it's primarily plant-based and the total fat intake equates to less than 10% of the overall caloric intake. And then lastly, the Pritkin diet. This includes some set intake of daily fiber, and it sets ratio for macronutrient consumption with carbs at 75%, protein at 20%, and fat at about 10%. Um, and the studies included compare the diets to either minimal interventions or other intervention programs and diets. And then all the studies had at least a nine month of intervention time. The outcomes measured were all cause mortality, cardiovascular mortality, 
and then other cardiovascular events such as stroke or non-fatal myocardial infarction. The analysis of the data showed that the Mediterranean diet was superior to minimal intervention, and this is based on moderate certainty evidence. There were decreases in all-cause mortality, cardiovascular mortality, stroke, and non-fatal MI. The low-fat programs were also superior to minimal intervention based on moderate certainty evidence, showing decreases in all-cause mortality and non-fatal MIs. The remainder of the diet showed little or no benefit compared to minimal intervention. Gabriella, this is, I think, a big deal because I was particularly impressed with the decrease in all-cause mortality with the Mediterranean diet, and it wasn't a little bit. I think it was over five years, almost a 40, not 40%, almost 30% decrease in all-cause mortality and a 45% decrease in cardiovascular mortality. And that's in the range that we get when we use a beta blocker for someone post-MI. Yet, I'm impressed we, when we think about clinical implications of this, I'm not sure we're always emphasizing what our patient's diet should be as much as we emphasize some of the medicines they are on. Your thoughts? Neil, I agree. The study points out that diet alone, aside from even exercise, has such a strong effect on people's overall mortality. And in the office, there's just so many to choose from. It can be overwhelming. And I don't know that we give, we give dietary advice every day and we should know. We should be able to point to particular diets more easily um, to give our patients something to follow. Yeah, I agree. It's interesting. How do we implement this in the office? It occurs to me, the more I've thought about it, is that people like you and I, primary care clinicians, ought to know about these outcomes, the effect of Mediterranean diet for people with cardiovascular disease, perhaps to a lesser effect, as you mentioned, the low-fat diet. We ought to know about the DASH diet. Now, we don't have to know the details of each one. You gave us a nice overview, but it, we could prescribe that and then use our colleagues, the dietitians, and ask our patients to see a dietitian to go over the details. How do I do that Mediterranean diet? But unless it's starting from us, where they're seeing us in follow up all the time, they never have that opportunity to see the dietitian. For our next article, we're going to discuss a really important article from the BMJ titled Dietary Sugar Consumption and Health, an Umbrella Review. And to discuss this with us is Dr. Richard Potter, who is a first-year family medicine resident in the Family Medicine Residency Program at Jefferson Health Abington. Richard, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Skolnick. Richard, why is this an important article? Overall, there have been a lot of studies so far regarding the effects of sugar consumption on different areas of health, including obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, gout, etc. And this is essentially an umbrella article that takes multiple meta-analyses on the comparison between sugar consumption and these different health outcomes. Yeah. 
It's interesting. And you said it exactly right. There's a lot of information out there, but it sometimes gets confusing when we have so much information out there and none of the information perfectly lines up. So one of the benefits of an umbrella review is it essentially looks at everything and then puts it together for us in a digestible way that is based on the evidence, but put in a way that we can understand. Richard, what were the results of this study? What did it show? It essentially looked at 73 different meta-analyses and 83 different health outcomes and lots of different articles on this topic. So there were significant harmful associations between dietary sugar consumption and mostly endocrine and metabolic outcomes, cardiovascular outcomes, and some cancer outcomes as well, which is an area of research that's pending in a sense. Yeah, it was pretty amazing to me. And one of, one of the things that they looked at was just 250 mLs a day of sugar-sweetened beverage, essentially a can of soda. And they found that 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 one can of soda, soda a day was associated with a 17% increase in the risk of coronary heart disease and a 4% increase in all-cause mortality. That was pretty striking, wouldn't you say? I absolutely agree. They actually rated this sort of scales of evidence in terms of a system called grade. And this kind of classified essentially as class two evidence, which though is not low sort of scale of evidence, it's a moderate scale of evidence. And I think across all the different meta-analyses they looked at, it's a very, it is a very striking result. And I think gathers years of research together and helps us. Yeah. Kind of I do think the advantage was that gathering years of research, another startling result to me was, because I don't always think about sugar and its relationship to cancer, that 25 grams a day of fructose, another sugar, and that, I believe 25 grams, you have about five grams of sugar per spoonful of sugar. So that's just five spoonfuls of sugar. That increase was associated with over a 20% higher risk of pancreatic cancer. Yeah, and that is, that's a very surprising result. And they did look at a host of other kinds of cancers with some of those associations. And they also found some evidence to suggest there is an association between sugar consumption and things like breast cancer. And among other things like colorectal cancer as well. And it's an area of research that they mention requires more evidence to be added to it. And I think that's a, I think that's an exciting area that. Yeah, it really is. So this relationship to cancer, relationship to cardi cardiovascular disease, not surprising to see a relationship an increased sugar consumption related to an increase in the risk for obesity and type two diabetes hypertension i believe stroke was also one of the ones that looked like it had an increase so we really see this effect throughout what do we do with that information your opinion what are the clinical implications of this umbrella review which puts together all the information out there on the subject one of the things i come across a lot of times with patients is the discussion about what kinds of things are they including in their diet and 
one of the areas that I found a lot of found a lot of improvement in for some patients is addressing addressing what they're drinking. And a lot of times things like soda and things like fruit juices and things like that have a very kind of excessive amount of added sugars to them, which is a large majority of the meta-analyses that they included in this umbrella review. We're looking at added sugars. There's a surprising amount of the sort of daily value of added sugars and sugary drinks. And we just advising patients on that has been an important step in um, promoting their health. Yeah, I agree with you. We're in the midst of an obesity epidemic. We know that over 40% of the adult population in the United States has a BMI greater than 30, so is classified as obese. About a third of adolescents fit that classification. And really, and from that downstream, of course, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, a number of different types of cancer. And one of the areas I think that this study really reinforces is how important it is, as you said, to take that detailed dietary history so that we can advise our patients to move away from even some of the other day, I had a patient who at first it seemed like they were doing everything correct, but then when asked in more detail, they were drinking about 30 ounces a day of what they thought was healthy because it was labeled organic fruit juices and filled with sugar. So there's a lot we can do, and uh, this study is a reminder of that. Dr. Potter, thanks so much. Thank you so much, Dr. Skolnick. I appreciate it. And that's it for this month. We'll have plenty more articles next month. See you then.